Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Ashley Walker. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a campaign to raise awareness of youth gambling risks. Another Minnesota school is offering certificate programs in the cannabis industry. I Am Betty, a musical about Betty Crocker, is wrapping up its run in Minnesota. But first... After Marvin Haynes was released Monday, proven innocent of a 2004 Minneapolis murder, the Great Northern Innocence Project, a key player in his release, is getting attention for their work. Eminence Ashley Walker spoke to one of the Innocent Project's attorneys, Anna McGinn, about what they do and how it works to set free incarcerated individuals who were wrongly convicted. So tell me a little bit about what you do for the Great North Innocence Project and what the project does to help Minnesotans? Sure. So I work with my two colleagues, uh, Jim and Andrew, to screen, investigate, and litigate claims of actual innocence in the states of Minnesota, North, and South Dakota. So in Minnesota, individuals who are incarcerated can write a letter to us explaining why they're innocent. We receive those letters and look into their cases. Uh, based on the information that they provide us in their initial, initial questionnaire, we pursue an investigation with the help of a lot of law students and interns and figure out which cases are not only the ones that are innocent, but also cases that we can adequately litigate in the courts or through other means of relief. Because the post-conviction landscape is very complicated and there are a lot of barriers to relief, we have to be creative at times when coming up with legal claims for our clients. And following that, once we determine the cases of individuals who are actually innocent, we pursue litigation on their behalf, usually through a post-conviction petition. Uh, That process begins after an individual's appeal has been affirmed. So in the state of Minnesota, After you're convicted of a crime, a felony, you have a right to an appeal. That's automatically, you're you're given an attorney for that if you can't afford one. If the appellate court upholds your conviction, that is when we come in and start looking at your case. Within your process, are you guys the ones that kind of push for and find out if the person is innocent, or how does that work? Because, like, in example, Marvin Haynes, he was in prison for 20 years. Now he's been released and found innocent. So it really depends. So yes, we do the investigating ourselves. Now with a caveat that some of our inmates have support systems or other individuals outside of prison that assist them in proving their innocence. So for example, with Marvin's case, His sisters were extremely instrumental in advocating on his behalf and provided us with very crucial information and assistance to proving Marvin's innocence. But when we get a case, we do start from scratch. So usually what that looks like is finding witnesses to talk to, consulting with medical experts or other expert witnesses like forensics on firearms or cell phone data, that sort of thing, to try to prove our individual's claim of innocence. Usually that always entails finding a new piece of evidence that was not presented at trial. So talking to a witness or seeing if a witness recants, that's 
typically the start of the process. For Marvin's case, we spoke with a lot of different witnesses to the crime, and some of those witnesses provided us with testimony in the form of affidavits that you would that we use to bolster our claims in court uh, on behalf of Marvin. So that's that it's kind of two components, talking to witnesses from the crime, individuals that are documented in, in their court documents or trial witnesses, and then also talking to expert witnesses that can testify on behalf of our clients. For example, in Marvin's case, we used Dr. Nancy Stabli, who is a expert psychologist, and she testified to the litany of ways that Marvin's case was a bad eyewitness identification. How many people have you guys helped in Minnesota and or are currently helping? We represent individuals outside of the state of Minnesota as well. We represent individuals outside of the state of Minnesota. For example, one of our clients was freed in North Dakota. Uh, we have received around 350 written requests this year from individuals in Minnesota, North and South Dakota. Primary source is Minnesota in part because Minnesota has a much larger population and a larger incarcerated population. We have 46 cases in Minnesota right now that we're investigating and we're formally representing 10 individuals in litigation in Minnesota right now. So, you know, the percentage of cases that we actually take is low, but that's because of how high of a of a burden it is to prove innocence in court. It's important for people to realize that after you're found guilty of a crime, the presumption of innocence goes away, and there's actually a presumption of guilt, and an individual in prison ha bears the burden of proving their innocence, which is a lot harder than some people might think, particularly if you don't have DNA exonerating you or video footage exonerating you. You know, in Marvin's case, it took a very long time for him to get out, far, far longer than any of us would have liked. But the process is long and difficult. Do people pay for these services? Is it like a nonprofit? What kind of organization? How is Great North Innocence Project run funding-wise? The Great North Innocence Project is a nonprofit, and we rely solely on donations from individuals and grants. Uh, the services are completely free for our clients and for any applicants and individuals that we choose not to take their cases, any investigative services that we expend throughout that process cost nothing to the individual inmate. Uh, we do a lot of DNA testing for individuals prior to representing them formally as a client, and we pay for that. So all of it relies on the donation of Minnesotans and people throughout the country that feel passionate about innocence work, and we're very grateful to those donors. MNN's Ashley Walker and Great Northern Innocent Project Attorney Anna McGinn. More Minnesota Matters after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. 
So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Another Minnesota school is offering certificate programs in the cannabis industry. This week, MN's Brent Palm talks with an official from St. Paul College about their programs aimed at preparing students for a career in cannabis. Brady Moleka, program manager at St. Paul College. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Brady. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brent. Well, we learned this week that St. Paul College is the latest Minnesota school to offer a cannabis education certificate programs. I'm guessing that there's going to be a demand for workers in the future. Brady, tell us kind of just the basics. Yeah, so we're really excited that we have three workforce training certificate programs that are all in the cannabis field. One is Cannabis Cultivation Specialist Certificate. Another is Cannabis Retail Specialist. The last would be the Cannabis Extraction and Product Development Specialist. All three of those certificates are uh, $750 each for anybody to take. And as you mentioned, Brent, we know that there's going to be such a, a growing desire for workers in this field over the next year as legalization, regulation, legislation, all of that's going to be changing over the next 18 months from what everybody's saying. And of course, currently we have the hemp industry, uh, the CBD industry that can really start employing folks that are going through the same program. There's a lot of crossover between the two, uh, hence the name cannabis and not, you know, especially in marijuana or in hemp. So um, being that it's a little bit of a more broad field, we can get folks sort of in the industry right now in hemp. And then hopefully as we learn more about the cannabis regulations and those dispensaries start to open in 2025, we should be able to fill those workforce needs as well. One of the things that I found interesting was these courses are nine weeks and it's a $750 course. That's pretty cool because if you want to be somebody who maybe wants to be in a growing manufacturing facility, cultivation would be the way to go. Nine weeks doesn't sound like a long time. Yeah, so all three of our certificate programs are online. They are what we call in the education world asynchronous, which means you can complete them at your own speed. Um, Of course, you do have those nine weeks that you need to get those programs completed by, but you can also finish a little bit sooner. So it's really important, I think, for prospective students to understand that this isn't necessarily a homegrown um, or product testing um, of the physical plant itself. More so, it's giving folks the understanding of the supply chain of cannabis. What are some of those entry-level skills that a worker is going to need to know to get into the field? And how can they utilize the education that we're providing them within that short nine weeks so that they can get out and get into the field, start working, start learning what are some of those mains of the products that they are actually physically working with within the dispensary? What are some of those other training pieces that they can learn on the job? And I will say that some of the great aspects about our three certificate programs is that we have some wraparound services, including some career awareness and an understanding that you are going to be placed on a job board and can actually see those physical jobs that we are recruiting for right now here in Minnesota. So it's a really great opportunity for anybody who uh, is aware of the field and knows maybe where they want to work, but also for those that have no idea about what this field is like. And they can come in and really get that crash course understanding about what is cannabis, what is the plant, how does it interact with your body, 
and how can we really be providing the best product for folks that are out there uh, while meeting those state regulations as they're you know slowly being developed here over the next year. Hey, Brady, how did this all come to fruition? At what point did you folks say, this industry is going to be booming? Let's educate some of these folks. Man, Brent, that's such a great question. So we have actually actively been just researching into the cannabis field itself and the the growing industry. Of course, we know there's other states out there that have already gone through this process, although there's no uh, real good federal guideline, as I'm sure many folks that are listening to this are aware. So for us, we are really just taking a safe approach with what the state is looking for, what our communities are looking for. But we also want to be sure that we are keeping up with the educational standards. So Greenflower is the company that we are partnering with that's providing the expert instructors. So we do a a very in-depth vetting process at St. Paul College with those that we work with externally to be sure that we are finding really just the high quality of education that our students are needing. Uh, Greenflower is a nationally recognized and awarded cannabis education company, and they're in many states that are legal already. So that was one of the reasons that we were really interested. And then just those wraparound services. So students that complete the certificates are gonna receive a digital badge, which will follow them around forever. They're given their transcripted hours through our workforce training department as a Minnesota state institution. So they will always have that record with them as well. Uh, And then the last piece is just that job board. I think it's fantastic that students are going to be placed outside of just Indeed or some of those other job boards that can be a little bit more generic or broad and actually be able to see, here's some jobs that I can apply for right now today after completing this program. You mentioned there's not really a timeline. How soon do these classes start? How soon can somebody get registered? So the cannabis training courses are currently open for registration, and you can start as soon as you sign up. So for any prospective students that want more information or if they want to sign up, they can go and visit cannabis.stpaul.edu. Can you say, Brady, how the interest has been? Yeah, absolutely. We've been getting some pretty constant phone calls. Uh, We just opened as of December 13th, so our our phones have just been going crazy. Uh, We are constantly hearing about students that want to register, and we um, aren't aware what our enrollment looks like right now as of today, but we do have a follow-up on Monday uh, to take a look at those enrollment numbers and, and should have a better idea. Well, Brady Maleka, Program Manager at St. Paul College, we appreciate you telling us a little bit about the Cannabis Education Certificate Programs. Uh, Maybe we'll check back with you uh, once we've got a a few classes graduated. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate it, Brent, and thanks for sharing the word. Thanks, Brent. More Minnesota Matters after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Gambling exposure during childhood is often through some kind of lottery product, such as lottery tickets or scratch-offs. Often these items are given to a child by an adult who is unaware of the associated risks. Joining me today is Susan Sheridan Tucker, Executive Director of the Minnesota Alliance for Problem Gambling. We want people to understand that um, while we are not anti-gambling, we are definitely um, against any form of gambling being introduced to people under the age of 18. Literally, youth's brains are not developed enough to understand the risks that are involved with gambling. And we know that um, if a, a youth use it, uh, you know, plays a scratch-off ticket and wins, that they're getting that dopamine hit um, that anybody would receive. 
but it's hard for them to to regulate those feelings. So we want adults to realize that this really isn't a good gift to give. There are plenty of other ways in which um, gifting can occur with with a uh, with a young person. Uh, we also know that the younger a person is exposed to gambling, that the greater likelihood uh, of them um, uh, experiencing problem gambling as an adult is far greater. Um, we know that with the Minnesota Student Survey that was conducted in 2022, that 6,000 high school st students are already indicating problems with gambling. Um, and um, we know that um, with more things being accessible online, there's lots of ways in which kids can get access to gambling um, with online uh, devices. Um, we've been advocating um, gifting responsibly for uh, quite a while. Uh, this is the 17th year that we've joined the Minnesota Lottery with, with this effort. And um, we want, we really want to engage families in conversations around if you're going to get, if you're going to gamble to understand the risks that are involved and there are things that um, people can do to minimize the risks. So that's part of this campaign. For a family that may be struggling with this, uh, or their child, etc. Um, what's a good resource, a good first step uh, if, if they want to, I guess, uh, get help for gambling addiction? Well, certainly if they start to see that their their child is withdrawing um, from usual activities, that they may be spending more money or asking to borrow money, um, that their moods are changing, they're becoming perhaps more depressed or um, or even aggressive. Uh, or they're even actually talking about their gambling. Those are sh certain signs that further conversation should happen. In the state of Minnesota, um, families can receive free treatment uh, for problem gambling. So uh, a parent and a child uh, could contact one of the uh, approved providers in the state and uh, could start to have that kind of uh, counseling. Um, but if parents aren't ready to, to see a counselor, there's certainly um, ways in which conversations can start in families. And we have a lot of resources on our, our website to um, to help guide parents um, or other trusted adults to, to begin these conversations. Thanks again to my guest, Susan Sheridan Tucker, Executive Director of the Minnesota Alliance for Problem Gambling. Time for our last break, stay tuned. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. 
Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Pick our cherished recipes with simplified instructions. Have them tested and perfected every reproduction. Document the whole step-by-step procedure. Effortless to follow with the picture features. I am Betty, a musical about Betty Crocker, the fictitious but still legendary marketing creation of Minnesota-based General Mills, had its world premiere at St. Paul's History Theater the Saturday after Thanksgiving and runs through the Saturday before Christmas. The actors play a variety of roles in the production, which spans the better part of the hundred years since Washburn Crosby Company, later General Mills, introduced America to Betty in 1921. Eminem's Bill Werner talked with cast member Anna Hajizume. We're spanning, you know, we'll go from the 1920s and then all of a sudden we're in the 1930s. And then in, you know, within a couple of pages, we're now in the 1940s and it's World War II. So something that was really challenging for the design team was to find something that looks sleek, that can be adjustable, but then also that can kind of showcase maybe certain periods of time. And we have a wonderful... um, uh, uh, pro- projector, um, mm. a woman who's running the projector and mm-hmm. found some images that can really help us place where we are because the set, um, like the set really can't do that uh, because of how quickly we move through time. I understand. Okay. So you're, you're augmenting yeah. that with certain visual cues and oral cues, uh, oral meaning yeah. sound cues, right? Another thing that comes to mind is just the societal changes. Um, America was quite a different nation when Betty Crocker first burst onto the scene, right, in the 1920s. Women's roles in particular were a lot different uh, than, than they are now. How was how that handled in the production? How has Betty Crocker been able to um, uh, still retain? I mean, she, she's not, I don't think, looked upon, in, uh, she's looked upon, shall we say, with, with, with affection and not with ridicule, right? Uh, but, but started out as being the, uh, the, perf- the perfect housewife, at least the, uh, um, yeah. uh, the, the food associated with the perfect housewife. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that aspect of it? Definitely. I think this show does a really wonderful job of highlighting the changing roles of women throughout the last 100 years without necessarily making any judgment or one-sided comment. So what's so great about this and what I think good theater is, is when you can go and rather than having questions answered, you leave with questions or you leave with a, a change of perspective, not because you saw something that changed your mind, but maybe you saw something that questioned what you came in initially thinking. I, th- I think you're absolutely so, right that that the best theater yeah. poses those questions, and that's a very much yeah. a, a different, I think, thing from film. A film can do that too, but I think live theater theater can be much more effective because you have actual living, breathing human beings in front of you in a three dimensional stage. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And there's this really poignant scene at the top of Act Two when all of a sudden we've hit the 1960s and we have this kind of conversation between Betty Friedan, a white woman, and um, Barbara Jo Taylor, who um, is starting to work at the Betty Crocker Test Kitchen, and Barbara Jo is a black woman. And you have this really interesting conversation between this white woman saying, you know, um, 
why why are why are you going to work at a place that is perpetuating a stereotype of what women should be and barbara joe is saying look some women want to be house homemakers and they should have the right to choose what they want to do and I, and did you I say barbara I'm, joe is, is is a black woman is that correct yes. so 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 that, yeah. that's a, even a more interesting just juxtaposition exactly and you don't really get an answer to the argument when when you see these two women talking but it opens your eyes in a way to um to different kind of struggles or different what people are fighting for and how um, you know, intersectional it, it can be, which I think is so, so interesting. And I, it's one of my favorite little scenes that happen in the show because I think it's, uh, it's just very poignant and um, uh, very well written, in my opinion. And, and the, the, the character, choice of the character's name, I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the woman who is, who is talking to the other woman saying, hey, why are you working here? Because it's a symbol of, right, of, of what women shouldn't be anymore. Is that a play on Betty Friedan, a feminist uh, activist? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the characters throughout the show are real historical characters. Okay. But we are portraying them in ways that, um, you know, we're writing kind of, it's, it's historical fiction, if you will, right? There are some, um, we, we have a lot of historical figures throughout the show, um, but we are a cast of nine women. And so there are people, like, you'll see, you know, a reference to Bob Hope or Betty Davis or Bing Crosby. And it's kind of this suspension of disbelief because, you know, none of us necessarily look like any of these people, but we're, we're kind of portraying them um, in, you know, in, in, in a suspended belief kind of way. <laughs> a very interesting approach. And, you know, and as we, you go through the decades and ultimately flip over the century, right, and and you and you move into Betty Crocker in 2021 or 2023. Who or what is Betty Crocker today? I think what's really cool about how the show ends, um, and I'm not giving away any ending, but I think <laughs> what's really cool is as you see us moving through the decades, is we start to kind of um, explore what being American is, and we explore what American food or American cooking or how you know, a figure like Betty Crocker um, and, and um, cooking uh, meals with people, for people, um, helps us um, create community. Mm. And I think that's a really special way that we start to, like, tie in uh, uh, various, you know, um, like an immigrant family and, and what that means for learning English or what that means for cooking and you know, is it, do we want to cook American food? Do we want to cook food from our own culture? Things like that. And um, I think that's, that's kind of where, in a way, where we leave the audience of, uh, um, and, and what Betty Crocker can kind of represent in, in a year like 20, in a decade like 2020, right? Um, it's like, the, what, what does it mean to be American and cook American food? That is Anna Hashizume, one of the cast members in the definitely Minnesota-based musical I Am Betty, about the life and times of the fictitious 
but still somehow very real Betty Crocker. It runs through December 23rd at St. Paul's History Theater, and at last check, Tasha, tickets are still available. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station, same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radal.